0: And thanks for listening.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. A former coal miner turned environmentalist says grassroots activists can best motivate citizens in the fight to confront climate disruption.
2: They can communicate with their local people. They know what people care about because they live in the community. And so it makes it so much easier for them to be more persuasive.
1: The grassroots stereotype often involves angry people with a megaphone, but that isn't always accurate.
0: It's really just people in a community who sort of see a problem and then they get together on their own and try to find a solution to it.
1: And what can we learn from young people pushing for change?
3: A lot of what I do, I don't really consider work. I consider it a passion of mine that these issues need to be addressed equitably and in a way that does not leave any community behind.
1: What motivates the activists at the grassroots level? Climate One's empowering conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking with local environmental and climate justice advocates about what drives them and what the big name organizations might learn from their work. Nick Mullins is a former fifth generation coal miner from Clintwood, Virginia, and creator of the blog Thoughts of a Coal Miner. He says growing up, his father taught him to love the woods that surrounded them.
2: He would take me and my brother to the top of the ridge line, uh, show us the trees, uh, we'd, we'd play in the streams. I uh, really, got, really got connected to nature that way.
1: His family also hunted and fished there. Mullen says as a kid, he had a lot of pride and respect for his forefathers who supported their family by working in the coal mines, but as he grew older, his views changed. When Mullins was 19 years old, a coal company opened a mine on the mountain above his family home.
2: It devastated me. Um, I wasn't really up on any of the fight against mountaintop removal, coal mining. But I I remember whenever they first started logging, uh, hiking up to the top of the ridge and seeing what was left of the landscape. And they had just obliterated all the oaks you know, all the poplars, and it didn't look like the same place. And then as the months continued, they started stripping away the topsoils, and it just became, as some people have said, like a moonscape, and they just chiseled away at the mountain, and it would never be the same again, um, only in memory.
1: Sounds like this is still upsetting for you, even to just to talk about those memories.
2: It is, you know, when people talk about a sense of place, I don't think people often think about how that place can be just utterly destroyed. And thinking about those kinds of things, yeah, still, still a bit of raw emotion for me, knowing that me and my brother were the only ones, or and of course some uh, other surviving family members are the only ones that are going to be able to remember some of those places that no longer exist, and I won't be able to show them to my children.
1: Coal miners are often portrayed as American heroes, keeping the lights on, fueling the industrial revolution. To what extent do you think coal miners see themselves that way as heroes?
2: They absolutely see themselves that way. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that kind of helps keep you going. You know, any, anytime that you're having to face a difficult situation day in and day out and, and face such dangers as coal mining, you certainly have to feel some pride in that what you're doing is good and worthwhile. You know, it's not unlike uh, a veteran status to, to some degree, that sense of, of, of sacrificing for you and your family and the nation at large.
1: Hmm. You eventually became a minor yourself. Why?
2: Well, it's purely economical. You can really delve into a lot of history to, to contextualize the situation that's in Appalachia currently. But. Essentially, the coal industry owns the majority of the region. They own the majority of the mineral rights under the ground. And so there is a tremendous amount of power that they hold in terms of of land ownership, economics, and politics. So the mono economy of coal that is in our region, it was created. So there are really very, very few job alternatives in the region for anyone that wants to continue living there.
1: And... You, were, you must have known you were taking personal health risks, but how did you weigh the personal economic benefits and personal health risks?
2: I mean, I really didn't weigh them out. You just did what you had to do for your family. Um, mm. You know, you, you tried not to think about it too often, uh, and, and you did your best to, to stay out of the dust and not put yourself in the more dangerous situations. And once you get into the mode, you're just doing what you have to do. And if you think about it too often, it will scare you and make it difficult to go in the mind. So you just, you just work.
1: Hmm. At some point you reconsidered your life. What prompted that?
2: Well, there was a lot going on. Um, was living in my great grandparents' old home place. Uh, we had inherited, had been fixing it up for several years and raising our kids in the same valley that, you know, uh, I had been raised in. And we lost it in a fire one night. Um, hmm. It just was such a shock to the system. We everything that we ever had and had worked towards was just gone. I remember the night, three nights later, going back to work and just getting ready to go into the portal down into the darkness. And I just had to ask myself, what am I doing? What's all this worth? And I, I don't know. It just made no sense to, to keep risking my life whenever thing material things were so. What's the word I'm looking for?
1: Fleeting or yeah. So the fleeting, loss, fleeting, yes, fleeting. The loss of the family home made you reassess your life and your values.
2: Yeah, and and it also made me think about you know, how important life is. Uh, we were fortunate not to be home that night, and how important spending time with with your children is, and that made me just kind of wake up and realize that life is a lot worth a lot more than working hours of overtime and darkness and risking your life and not, you know, not knowing what the next day could bring.
1: Mm, I can see that. Sure. Nick Mullins is a former fifth generation coal miner from Clintwood, Virginia and creator of the blog Thoughts of a Coal Miner. So you tried to leave a couple times, and then eventually you left for good. Uh, what made you start checking out environmental organizations?
2: My dad had been picking up this, uh, this newsletter that was being published by a local environmental organization, and they were mainly talking about natural gas. But it was through them and a documentary that was on Discovery Green that I kind of became aware of the issues with mountaintop removal coal mining. Uh, in that people were fighting surface mining. I was never a big fan of surface mining, which was one of the reasons I went underground. But I also had noticed that there were a lot of uh, coal miners that were, you know, retired from the union mines who were involved in this fight as well. And so I saw a possibility of connecting between the labor rights movement and the environmental movement to try to get some justice in Appalachia.
1: And what sort of uh, activism did you take part in, and what how effective was it?
2: Well, the the first, I guess, uh, bit of activism that I got involved in was going to Appalachia Rising in Washington D.C. It was a large event that was hosted by the Alliance for Appalachia, um, in which they brought together, you know, a few thousand people to fight mountaintop removal, uh, with lobbying days, uh, and there was a march. I remember specifically though the first plenary or uh, gathering in which they were they had a panel speaking. They asked all the Appalachian mountain people to stand up that was in the room, and of course I stood up with my family. And then I looked around and there was only seven or eight of us in the room, of probably three or four hundred. And I was like, "Wow, there's a lot of support here uh, to help stop this. That is great." And it was very empowering. Yeah, we marched to the White House and people sat down in front of the white house and refused to move in acts of civil disobedience and i was just kind of watching the capitol hill law enforcement i said i guess this is just a uh, another day isn't it you all see this a lot and he's like every day <laughs> that's whenever i was thinking to myself is this really going to have an impact because somebody is here every day Doing the same thing or something similar for a different cause, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is this really beneficial to to actually fighting mountaintop removal?
1: I mean, do you think that an individual can have an impact on something bigger than themselves?
2: That's always the hope. Um, I I believe that there are always going to be people who can do well at organizing. Yeah, you know, I think back to the the, the union miners, uh, including Mm -hmm. my great-grandfather. And they were up against, you know, tremendous odds. And during those days, it wasn't uncommon for the coal companies to hire mercenaries to defend their coal mines and to bust the union. And that started with people just coming together under a common cause and understanding that they, they were being exploited, they were being oppressed. And that they had to fight for the common good. So I believe that an individual still has the capability of bringing people together and uniting across those lines that can 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 help really spur a movement that's necessary to get us beyond all these fossil fuels. But that person also has to connect with other people, and it has to grow. It can't be just one person.
1: Mm-hmm sounds like you're talking about a linkage between sort of the, the labor movement and the environmental movement that there's, you're acting like your forefathers in, in a slightly different way.
2: Precisely. I mean, traditionally, the fossil fuels industry has been abusive towards employees. Uh, and, and most extractive industries have been a, a abusive towards their employees with long legacies of, of workplace safety issues, as well as, you know, issues in pay and long-term health care benefits. And these are all things that are very closely linked to, to what environmental activists are looking for as well. The environmental justice movement, I feel, when you know, at least those that are closer to the working class families or who come from working class families, especially the grassroots activists, understand that the environmental justice movement should be more about system change and that. All aspects have to be changed before we can really start to work towards cleaning up the environment and stopping these industries.
1: Mm. It's a lot of the uh, connectedness that we talk about on Climate One. You write about the stereotype of environmental activists as, quote, overeducated tree huggers from way the hell away from here, end quote. How did your neighbors and former co-workers look at you when you became, quote, an environmentalist?
2: Well, they didn't, didn't like me very well. Uh, I was called a traitor, and I think people hated me even worse than they did a traditional environmentalist because they saw me as having gone to the other side.
1: Oh, betrayal within, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But over time, once they realized that I had their interests in mind, and I kind of began to speak against some of the things that the environmentalists were doing wrong in the way that they were portraying coal miners – then I was able to mend those bonds and uh, regain the respect of a lot of my friends.
1: As you note, a lot of um, support for change in Appalachia comes from outsiders. How critical is your credibility and experience as an insider, literally inside the mines, for affecting change with, with environmentalists?
2: I don't know. I, I often get the feeling that, you know, although my voice is appreciated, and that uh, people say that I have a powerful voice. I don't think it really goes that goes too far outside of that. Um, the Sierra Club had an opening for a campaign organizer in eastern Kentucky for the Beyond Coal campaign, and at the time I was like, "Wow, this would be a great opportunity. Uh, I can talk with coal miners. I can help start to to mend some of this." Uh, so I interviewed for the position, and then was later, you know, informed that I didn't get it, and. Several years later, I found out that one of the primary reasons was is I didn't have a college education, I didn't have a diploma or a bachelor's degree. So, yeah, that that bothered me quite a bit. And I, I had some friends advocating for me within the within the organization. Hmm. And and I've also seen the way that they, that some of these large organizations tend to use grassroots activists' voices, but whenever it comes to giving them employment or full time, you know benefited positions Uh, they often just give them small-scale grants and stuff that barely keeps them going Uh, nothing that you could count on for a living wage for any any sort of job security so it makes it difficult and ultimately the grassroots environmentalists have to fall back and be concerned more with their own personal ability to survive and take care of their kids than they can to to actually fight the good fight a lot of times.
1: I'm talking with Nick Mullins, a former fifth generation coal miner from Clintwood, Virginia, and creator of the blog Thoughts of a Coal Miner. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation and we'll hear more examples of how grassroots activism can affect change at the local level.
0: There are communities all around this country that have been thinking through piecemeal solutions to to these problems for a really long time, actually
1: sharing the lessons from grassroots work. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part we look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to
2: this.
1: This is Climate One. Nick Mullins is a former fifth-generation coal miner from Clintwood, Virginia, and creator of the blog Thoughts of a Coal Miner. He's now an environmental activist. He's written about what he says is, quote, the unfortunate nature of the nonprofit, academic, and activist industrial complexes that overtake actual grassroots justice work. I had never heard of the nonprofit, academic, and activist complex and asked him to explain.
2: In my experience, uh, working in and out of activist organizations and working in academia, I've seen a lot of privilege, unfortunately, that makes it difficult to connect with the people of these areas that are being the most impacted by environmental issues and environmental injustices. Within these organizations, we have a lot of people who are running them and who are being paid salaries and living in very nice areas of the nation who never really came from any kind of similar background as, as say, someone who grew up in Appalachia Uh, and who were first generation to go to college. And that breeds an unfortunate disconnect, I feel, with the people. Um, So unfortunately, what I've noticed is that they will use local grassroots activists' voices and the struggles that people are fighting, and they'll back them, and then they'll create a huge amount of media about it, um, especially in terms of gaining donations to help fight these battles. But whether or not that money trickles down to the actual grassroots activists fighting these battles is, is often questionable from what I've seen.
1: So there's a certain um, arrogance or elitism that you're, you're talking about from people who with, uh, think they know best with good intentions, but they don't know the local area.
2: Yes, and I think a lot of that falls back on rural-urban divides and a lot of the political divide that's going on in our nation. I mean, if we really think of in terms of the economy and how things work, if you are a working-class citizen, if you're a coal miner, you're typically paid a lot less than somebody that went to college. And so the narrative in our nation is get a degree so you can go on and get a better job so you don't have to work outside and you don't have to to face all these terrible realities of that the working class is having to face. And so conversely, those who aren't able to succeed, who aren't able to go on to college, either because they lack the funding or they grew up in a school system that doesn't do well to promote students to go to college. You know, they feel as if they are lesser people.
0: Mhm-hmm.
2: And so you have to find some way within yourself to feel pride and to feel dignity. And so a lot of the times that comes out as anti-environmentalism, uh, anti-intellectualism. Sadly, that also has created within academic circles and within a lot of organizations, a kind of downward looking at the people in these communities. And they don't understand that it's reactionary to their privilege and to the the fact that they were able to succeed in ways because they already had resources handed to them.
1: So what can the grassroots activists do that the national big organizations can't?
2: They can communicate with their local people. They know what it's like to live in these situations because they live in the community. And so it makes it so much easier for them to be more persuasive. and. In cases like Appalachia, where we've had people, outsiders come in first, take all of our mineral rights, um, and then make us work terrible jobs, uh, and, and of course, the media who came in in the '60s and portrayed our poverty in a negative way without contextualizing why we were in poverty, uh, we have this real outsider stigma. So whenever more people come in to try to tell us how we should live, and that we're doing something wrong, it really strikes at those those issues. And, and that goes for so many other communities out there.
1: Yeah, trusted messengers are so important. Uh, so what would be your advice to big environmental elitist organizations? Clearly, they have a role to play. They do have tremendous power and success. But, but what would be your advice to them?
2: My advice would be to do as much fundraising as you need to do. But... You need to make sure that those funds get down to the grassroots level and that you don't need to micromanage grassroots activists, that we need resources just as much as anyone else to be able to support our families and do this important work. Uh, And that as much as you may understand the situation and that you might have read sociological You know, work about the region um, and and the people, and you may be woke to all the issues that we're, uh, you know, up against, you still haven't been able to walk a mile in our shoes. And so it's going to be extremely difficult for you to be able to do any kind of, of positive work. You have to rely on the grassroots people. And that means humbling yourself a great deal, having faith in those people in communities who may not hold a college degree, who may not see everything the same way that you do, but have faith that they can and will get, you know, make change in their communities if they're provided the resources.
1: Thank you, Nick Mullins. Appreciate your time sharing your story. Thank you. Nick Mullins is a former fifth generation coal miner from Clintwood, Virginia, and now is an environmental activist. Mullins is one of the many grassroots activists featured in the book, The World We Need, Stories and Lessons from America's Unsung Environmental Movement. The book's editor, Audria Lim, says the goal was to push against the tide of coverage focused on large environmental groups. Instead, she sought to highlight people often working in their own communities to combat pollution and build towards a cleaner and more equitable society. She says those efforts are diverse from housing and gentrification to local food systems and sustainable businesses. The book features the work of three dozen such activists, but I asked Lim if she could tell us one story that really stayed with her.
0: There's so many good stories in here. My favorite one, or the one that um, really stuck with me and actually gave me a lot of hope, is uh, based in Hawaii. Um, and it's an interview with this man, Eric Enos. Um, and he's Native Hawaiian, but he grew up with you know very little knowledge of his Native Hawaiian culture, like including the central importance of taro. It's this purple root vegetable that Mm, um, most people might. Yeah. love it. Yeah. But it's very important in Native Hawaiian culture, which, you know, was suppressed under U.S. colonialism. So Eric began teaching art to Native youth gang members. And he also took them hiking in the back of um, the Waianae Valley, which was basically just dried up and that was where the gangs the the syndicates would dump bodies and stolen cars basically and while they were sort of hiking and camping there they found these like just walls and just terraces uh in the ground and these were like clearly cultural sites but they had really no idea what they were so um eric knew that the bishop museum um, they had some archaeologists there who, uh, you know, white archaeologists who were environmentalists, and he knew they would be sympathetic. So he went and asked for their help, and they sent um, some of their experts who found that, you know, the entire area was once actually under taro cultivation. Um, but you know, the water in the in the back of that valley had been diverted towards the uh, colonial, sugar plantations like a, a long time ago. Uh, so then he went and appealed to for help um, from like a state senator and local agencies who then sort of gave uh, him and his youth um, some guidance and help and funding to sort of build a new irrigation system. And so they all began growing native plants and through the process, all of them, yeah, I mean, they had been basically alienated From their own culture, they had been told that this was, um, you know, this was a culture that was like backwards and um, uncivilized all their lives. And they discovered um, by sort of farming, learning to farm uh, in the back of the Waianae Valley, they learn about the land, their own culture, and also about um, the taro in the process. So, I mean, the reason that I really like this story and it sticks with me is... Um, I mean, it's really touching, but it also shows how, I guess, lots of different kinds of institutions and people from different communities and backgrounds can collaborate and come together to support this like, very tiny community to build like, a very different, you know, more just, more equitable, and more resilient future.
1: Right, and, sh- and relying on each other and sharing and I'll help you here, you help me there. It's not all about a commercial or financial transaction. One of the people you feature, Bernadette Dementiev, is executive director of the Gwich'in Steering Committee in Alaska, says she's always had to straddle two worlds, quote, one that's being pushed on us and another we're trying to protect Do you see a difference in approach with activists whose way of life has been under attack for generations, Indigenous and Black people, from those where their threat is newer and more sudden?
0: Yeah. um, I mean, there definitely is a difference. Um, I think for communities like Bernadette's um, and also with um, somebody like uh, Eric Enos, um, the Native Hawaiian activist who grew up, um, you know, with— very little connection to his land or culture. When you sort of grow up uh, with that sort of a, I guess, identity, it's really not just one thing. Um, it's that you're like generations and generations of your ancestors, say as an indigenous person in, in America, you know, you've been repeatedly pushed off your, your land, like, you know, have and had your land stolen from you uh, repeatedly, and then there's histories of, you know, Native kids being sent to schools where they're taught that um, they need to, you know, forget about everything, uh, their entire culture, they, that they shouldn't speak their language, um, that they should, you know, hate the things about them that, you know, their families probably really treasured, you know, the culture, food. Yeah, it's just, it's cumulative.
1: That trauma. What I hear you there's intergenerational trauma. The people who've experienced that generation after generation, um, and people of color, indigenous people, know that and live that trauma. And you write that many groups and activists have understood for decades that pollution and environmental destruction besieged their communities, pipelines, factory farms, dams. You know, were those were symptoms of America's deeper dysfunctions. One thing that jumped out at me in your book is the Sorel Report commissioned by the California Waste Management Board, um, which actually put in writing that waste facilities should look for low education communities open to exploitation who don't speak English and are Catholic. You know, we often know that to be true, but it's not common in mind, to my knowledge, that organizations actually put it in writing so explicitly.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this is something that has like a very long history in America. I Again, mean, not new, um, but yeah,
1: still startling to yeah. see in writing.
0: <laughs> yeah. this. I mean, the Sorel Report, I think, is from the 80s. Um, and yeah, even from before uh, the U.S. was a country, British companies, colonial companies would come and they felt completely fine going into, um, you know, areas that were um, where there were, you know, thriving indigenous societies and economies um, and just, you know, chase them out or, you know, mine, mine their gold um, for really similar reasons. Um, And yeah, that continued to be the case.
1: My guest is Audrey Lim, editor of the new book, The World We Need: Stories and Lessons from America's Unsung Environmental Movement. For many people, the term grassroots activist conjures images of small bands of angry people raising their fists with megaphones. Your book also includes examples of activist art, other kinds of, of power accumulation. You talk about citizen science as a form of activism. You know, how are there different ways of being an activist?
0: I mean, I think the thing about grassroots activism actually uh apart from the stereotype is that it's really just people in a community who sort of see a problem whether that's you know um like refineries being built in their neighborhood or um you know they want a community garden because they don't have access to food and then they get together on their own and try to um find a solution to it or to you know fight off the corporations that are trying to come into their um, community. Um, and it's really si- as simple as that. Grassroots activists can be, you know, mothers and, grand, gra- and grandparents, um, you know, who are concerned about these kinds of things, or, yeah, scientists in a community. And so, you know, grassroots activists can also use just a range of different tools
1: so collecting data can make you an activist, too. It doesn't have to be, yeah, that sort of stereotypical, you know, shouting. You can collect data with an application and uh, and that can be an activist.
0: Yeah, and, and there are activists in the book who, for instance, came together to try to pressure all the different dollar stores to uh, just to stop selling products in their dollar stores um, that had toxic chemicals. Um, And one thing that the activists there talked about, these are very small, very small uh, grassroots, you know, farm worker, uh, or just like little, little citizens groups uh, in these poor communities. Um, And some of them talked about how, um, yeah, they had been doing a lot of these, like, you know, protests and just activist work in their communities. But one really important turning point for them was when they um just linked up with some of these bigger more resourced groups who had access to um you know scientists and and just the resources to be able to fund these scientists to go and like test all these different products and actually um generate data on you know what what chemicals actually were in all of these products and then you know, to be able to bring bring that data to, uh, you know, big funders um, and to politicians and to shareholders meetings and to be able to, yeah, pressure these much bigger institutions.
1: So there are benefits of scale and resources that the large organizations bring. The subtitle of the book, The World We Need, is Stories and Lessons from America's Unsung Environmental Movement. So what are some of the biggest lessons you hope readers will learn from the book.
0: The climate crisis just feels like this really big, almost unmanageable thing that, you know, there's a lot of despair around how how we're going to tackle this problem that seems to require like really changes to every everything around us. And, you know, it is, it is obviously a very daunting challenge. But one thing that I hope that readers will come away from this book with is that, there are communities all around this country that have been thinking through piecemeal solutions to uh, to these problems um, for a really long time, actually. So, yeah, I think one of the lessons is that, that I hope people will take away from this is that there's still hope.
1: We can do it. Yeah. yeah. Audrey Lim, thanks for coming on Climate One. Appreciate your time. Thanks. You're listening to a conversation about grassroots activism in the climate movement. Coming up, We hear from a young activist turned city council member.
3: I always saw myself as someone who'd be holding elected officials accountable, not necessarily being the one in office Mm -hmm. uh, being held accountable. So it was definitely eye-opening.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking with grassroots activists about their role in the environmental and climate movements. Environmental contamination from fossil fuels or heavy industry can leave a long legacy in a community, often in the bodies of residents. San Francisco's Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood is one such place. Climate One contributor Daphne Young brings us the story of an advocate who is carrying on the legacy of her activist mother by creating a foundation to spur on the next generation to push for clean neighborhoods.
4: My mother's name is Marie Harrison in San Francisco, also known as the mother of the movement, the mother of environmental justice.
5: That's Ariane Harrison, the daughter of Hilda Marie Harrison, a longtime environmental activist in the Bayview-Hunters Point community.
4: My mother started off, you know, she didn't set out to be an activist. Back when um, Geneva Towers was getting uh, dismantled, she fought and advocated for the tenants to have access and be moved over transitioned over into the new apartments they were building.
5: From the early 1970s until her death in 2019, Marie Harrison was a champion for her community. She organized rallies, wrote articles in local newspapers, calling out the U.S. Navy and Pacific Gas and Electric for leaving toxic waste in the predominantly black community of Bayview-Hunters Point, which now has the highest number of cases of asthma and respiratory disease in San Francisco County. And Marie Harrison took her claims all the way to City Hall.
4: You know, my mother, she started the fight against PG&E. PG&E was spitting all kinds of toxins into the air, right? My mother did tours of all the toxic sites in Bayview.
5: Her daughter, Ariane, says the fight against PG&E and the Naval Yard became personal for her mother when their own family started to have health problems.
4: You know, the reason that my mother was so outspoken about what was going on down in the shipyard in the toxic cider minor was because of her grandson, because she couldn't figure out while my son, my my baby was getting sick so much.
5: Not only was Ariane's son constantly sick, but her sister was diagnosed with breast cancer at 30, and her father died of colon cancer.
4: Everybody was getting sick. You know, there's a documentary you can look up now on YouTube, just about Hunters Point alone. And all you hear residents talking about is people having nosebleeds, people dying of cancer you know, uh, part of her fighting for the community, she she developed a a respiratory disease herself.
5: In 2019, Ariane's mother, the Bayview Trailblazer, Marie Harrison, died from chronic lung disease at age 71, yet she never smoked. The U.S. Navy shut down what became the Superfund site back in the early 70s. It took PG&E until 2006 to close the fossil fuel burning power plant. Marie Harrison's activism contributed to both closures. This past Earth Day, Arianne followed in her mom's footsteps and joined about 100 protesters at San Francisco City Hall. She urged city officials to call for a moratorium in the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood and to get the health department to help fund the Biomonitoring Center in Bayview, where residents could have their urine tested for toxic chemicals left behind at the Navy shipyard.
4: They need to test the people. If you cannot test the ground, the ground, then you need to take them scientists and have them to test test the people that have been there, living there the longer. I'm saying you want us to shut up and go away? Test us. Discredit what we're saying.
5: Earlier this year, Ariane helped create the Marie Harrison Community Foundation in hopes of continuing her mother's work to shed light on the environmental injustice taking place in the Bayview-Hunters Point neighborhood and to finally get the Navy shipyard cleaned up.
4: I wanted my mother to, to be remembered, and other people wanted my mother to be remembered as well for her services she provided to the community and other communities abroad. Because my mother just wasn't central to San Francisco. My mother uh, worked with all of the area and different things across the Bay and indigenous tribes.
5: Arianne says the purpose of the Marie Harrison Community Foundation is also to offer scholarships to educate, advocate, and promote young community leaders through environmental science and activism.
4: My mom was five foot two, but I'm telling you, she had the loudest voice in the room. She didn't mind going to City Hall and sharing her views about what was going on, and she didn't mind taking the Army with her.
5: In San Francisco, I'm Daphne Young for Climate One.
1: Four years ago, I interviewed a young climate activist named James Coleman. At the time, he was a high school senior in South San Francisco, an industrial city separate from its more famous neighbor. Now he's a city council member. I invited him back on Climate One. And we started by listening to a clip from our conversation in 2017.
3: I'm an aspiring scientist, and as scientists, we see that they stick to their labs, they stick to their science. They're not really out in the political world. But right now we're seeing that politics and science are merging together, and that scientists have to be a voice in our society. They have to get out, they have to tell us what the facts are and how we should use our policy to fight climate change.
1: So you're studying regenerative biology at Harvard, but now you're also the youngest member of the South San Francisco City Council. How have your views changed about the balance of science and politics?
3: I feel like I've just throughout my college career, I've kind of done what I said in that clip where I did pursue science. I am majoring in, in biology. I did. I have been working in a lab for the last you know three years until the shelter in place. and. You know, despite spending much time in the lab, I still found time to be involved um, politically and with the issues, whether it be on campus, in Boston, or here in my home community.
1: So how do you see the interaction between politics and science? Because some people would say, science shouldn't be political, it's been politicized in this country, you know, just facts and politics. How do you see that interaction or the tension between them?
3: Yeah, I think there's a lot of tension. Um, I think, especially with COVID, there's a lot of tension between the science community and politics. I think the pandemic has been politicized, uh, unfortunately, through the Trump administration. And we're seeing the impacts where folks aren't wearing masks, where folks are refusing the vaccine. And it's not based on any hard science. So I think it's really important that uh, scientists speak out and say that, you know, these are undeniable facts. These facts need to be taken as facts and not politicized by by whatever is happening in the, in the national discourse.
1: So when you were in high school, you were a fellow at the Alliance for Climate Education and educational group, of course, uh, that presented to high school students around the country. Now you're a senior at Harvard. You've been an advocate for the fossil fuel divest Harvard and a co-founder of the Harvard undergraduates for environmental justice. You seem so busy. How do you do it all?
3: I, <laughs> I try to find time and I, I do overbook myself, I feel um but you know it's like i think it's easier when you have a passion and when you love what you're doing and when you see the impact of of climate change and what the world can be if we transition to a renewable energy economy if we um, change our political systems if we believe in science and fight for the world that we all know is possible and so a lot of what i do i don't really consider work i consider it you know, um, a passion of mine that that these issues need to be addressed and need to be addressed equitably and in a way that does not leave any community behind.
1: For people who don't know, how would you describe the city of South San Francisco?
3: I would describe it as um, very diverse, very working class. Well, there's a lot of science in, in South San Francisco. So we were, you know, we were once called the industrial city. We still are. But now I think a more suitable name would be the biotech city. Because we are right now the biotech capital of the world, and we have tens of thousands of jobs—you know, biology and, and pharmaceutical jobs.
1: Yeah, there's a cluster of uh, office parks between San Francisco and the San Francisco Airport. Lots of uh, yeah biotech firms there. Walk me through the process for you're a student at Harvard, but you're a shelter in place. You're studying remotely in your home in South San Francisco. And how do you decide then to, hey, I'm in college, but I think I'll run for the city council? How does that, <laughs> how does that happen?
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's really weird because the pandemic is what allowed me to run for office and also serve while still finishing up my studies at Harvard. And so a bunch of friends that I graduated with in high school and I, we started going to school board meetings and city council meetings, and trying to see what was going on in our home community and then we saw that the murder of george floyd happened in late may and we were all taken aback by that Um, and we saw that our home community of south san francisco was no stranger to its share of police violence you know when we went to our city council and we were asking for change we were asking for accountability the, the the way the city council the old city council responded was to many young people who were getting involved in local politics for the first time. They were spot responding dismissively and, and condescendingly. And when I saw that there was this disdain for the youth community who, who was demanding change, that I saw that you know we needed to hold our elected leaders accountable.
1: Did the political establishment take you seriously? How did they treat you at first as a college candidate?
3: Well, <laughs> Yeah, they didn't treat me too seriously at the beginning, but I think um, we, you know, all it really takes is a conversation for someone to know that you're serious, um, that you care about the issues, that, you know, you're fighting for the right things. And so we ran a campaign that was grassroots. Um, We didn't knock doors because of the pandemic, but we did lots of flyer drops throughout the district. Um, We made probably 17,000 phone calls and we raised money primarily through small dollar donations, and we were able to outraise the incumbent, and have an average donation that was ten times less than than my opponents. And it just goes to show that you know, with people power, you can um, beat the political establishment, and run on a campaign with you know, an unapologetically progressive campaign and win.
1: How often did you talk about climate during your campaign?
3: Very, very often, <laughs> and this was. You know, remember um, in San Francisco, it was last, uh, it was last September, where we had that art, that orange Wednesday, oh, where man. the skies were all orange, and that scared a lot of people. Like, is this the future? Is this the Blade Runner future that we're looking at here? Is this going to be the status quo? And I saw that you know our city could be doing so much more to address climate change through requiring all electric buildings and and electrical appliances to where we can make that transition faster.
1: So what was it like as a 21-year-old going into your first online meeting as an elected official?
3: It was very interesting. <laughs> I don't I don't really have words to describe it. You know, growing up I never saw myself as an elected official. I always saw myself as an activist because that's you know what I did in high school. That's that's the role that I had as a as a college student. I always saw myself as someone who'd be holding elected officials accountable, not necessarily being the one in office uh, mm-hmm. being held accountable. Um, so it was definitely eye-opening, and you know, even sometimes today, these days, I'm I just sit here thinking, like, am I really <laughs> a council member, um, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, doing these things and, and trying to to fight for for these policies?
1: What's it like being on the other side now?
3: It's it's much different. Um, you know, there's certain things you can say as an activist and certain things you can't say as an elected official. Um, and so I've had to change the way I, I conduct myself publicly because I'm not just, you know, I'm not representing like an activist organization now. I'm Now I'm representing the city of South San Francisco. And that means that I need to represent every single resident of South San Francisco and their interests. And I've also seen that there's a lot of bureaucracy involved. There's a lot of interaction between state and local and federal politics that a lot of people, and and policies that a lot of people don't realize and that you know some things you can do at the local level, some things you can't. One thing would be like qualified immunity. That's not something you can do at the local level. That's a state and federal level thing. But with reach codes um, and-
1: What are reach codes?
3: Reach codes are building codes that go beyond state regulation. And so, for example, would be like requiring um, all electric buildings, or banning new construction that includes na- natural gas, um, requiring um, more electrical vehicle chargers in new construction, things like that, um, that basically go beyond the state requirements, and that you know local local cities can can pursue that that can really be an example for other cities to follow and for the state to eventually adopt in the future.
1: So when you talk to your neighbors, now constituents, how do you talk about climate and things tangible relative to their lives?
3: Yeah, I talk about the need to transition away um, from fossil fuels um, and how we can do so at the city level. And I also talk about the need for a just transition. I think you know one of the more, most important concepts when it comes to climate change is the concept of environmental justice and acknowledging that climate change affects different people in different ways. And that when we address climate change, it has to be done so in an equitable way that does not leave any communities behind. And so you know, that means job training programs for coal miners and also ensuring that commu- low income communities, communities of color, marginalized communities that they are getting the resources that they need, like air purifiers, so that they're not being disproportionately impact, impacted by climate change.
1: And when you think about the importance of working with communities, how do, you, how do you think about, how do you make it local and real to people in South San Francisco? Because, you know, there's no coal in South San Francisco, right? But how do, you, how do you make things, bring things home to their lives?
3: I think a lot of people are now kind of Shocked and scared about the annual wildfire season that we have in California now. You know, growing up my entire life, um, there was there, there never really was a wildfire season where we had weeks of polluted air um, that was hazardous to breathe. But ever since I believe it was twenty twenty eighteen or twenty seventeen, we had we've been having annual wildfire seasons where you know classes have been canceled, where you have Ash in the air for, for weeks at a time, um, where you have so many homes being destroyed because of climate change intensified wildfire seasons. And I think people, you know, this is, they realize it's not the community I grew up in. And they don't want this to be the status quo and that something needs to change. Um, that means, you know, changing the way we, we conduct our system of, of energy um, and making it more renewable and more sustainable.
1: Youth are really pushing the climate conversation and pushing people in power. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, resentment even at the baby boomers and what they've done. Um, I'm curious about what the reaction has been of your, some of your peers to you uh, going into elected office.
3: I think a lot of folks are, are inspired and they want to see more activists in office. They want to see more youth in office, more Gen Zers. We're not talking about millennials anymore. We're talking about the Zoomers <laughs> and, and having them take over. Um, and you know, it's not everyone. You know, some people want to stay in the activist position. They want to continue, um, and that—that's just how they see their role as, right? Um, but I think that the institutional knowledge um, from being a city council member, from being on the inside, I think that that can help inform a lot of activists, and a lot of activists can inform elected officials like I, like like I am about, you know, the various issues that the community is concerned about, the the changes that they want to see. You know, it's their job to be idealistic, to have the vision, and it's my job to implement that vision and make it possible.
1: James Coleman's a member of the City Council of South San Francisco and a senior at Harvard studying human development and regenerative biology. James, thanks for coming on Climate One.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me again.
1: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the environmental and climate movements and what we can learn from those pushing for change within their own communities. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation, which is so difficult to have. Let me know what you think about the show by emailing me at greg at Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Arianna Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Arnav Gupta is our audio engineer. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. And Tyler Reed directs our operations. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.